Listen, I want you to open up to the book of Ephesians uh, this morning. And as you do, uh, I want you to I want you to categorize yourself in one of these two categories. Sometimes it's hard because you're like, well, I'm sort of this and sort of that, but you'll kind of know what I'm talking about. Some of you in this room are um, are are those who kind of speed through life, and you you walk into a let's say a, a museum or an amusement park, and you can pretty much hit everything that's there to offer you know, in about 40 minutes, depending on the size of it. And others of you, just by nature, are lingerers. And it takes you several days to get through the exact same museum or amusement park or whatever it is. This shows up particularly in um, in TV watching. Uh, I would say that typically those who rush through an amusement park are doing this all the time. Because they're wondering, like, what else is on? And they're they're always on to the next thing, Right? And others of you are like, hand me the remote and back away and just leave it. Let's just put it on one channel and watch it. If you're looking at something, one of you is standing there noticing just all the, the nuances and the details and how it makes you feel and all that. The other person's going, we've seen it. What else is there to see? Let's go on. There's, there's other things. What's beautiful is in almost every family, there are both types of people. I mean, isn't this what makes vacation so wonderful? It's just, that's, that's where it provides spark and interest. Otherwise, it'd be kind of boring. Um, and oftentimes, you'll marry someone who's opposite of you on these things. One is just lingering over the meal and savoring the ambiance and the smells and the delicate nuances of flavor. The other one's like, what's for dessert? What's taking you so long? We've got something else to do, I'm sure. And it's not happening, so I'm frustrated. Uh, here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to frustrate those who speed through life and we're going to celebrate the lingerers today, okay? So if you're a lingerer, you're happy today because instead of moving on from the book of Ephesians right into the next book, which we so often do or contend to do, or rush from right one series right into the next series, we're going to take this morning and we're just going to kind of think back on the book of Ephesians. We've spent several months in this together. We started this roughly in September, had several breaks in between for different things, but rather than rushing on, we want to we want to just stop and kind of soak in this. Let me give you some scripture to arm you with, those of you who linger in life. Um, and uh, and those of you who rush through life, take a lesson from, from Proverbs. Here's what Proverbs 132 says. For simpletons turn away from me to death. Fools are destroyed by their own complacency. But all who listen to me will live in peace, untroubled by fear of harm. Now, let me just tell you where I'm going with this. To take time to listen takes time, right? It it requires you slowing down, and we are a multitasking culture, and we think it's getting us more productive. Studies are coming out all the time saying it's actually making you work longer hours for less ideas, and it's harder to be creative. Uh, I'm really trying to learn how to discipline my life to let technology continue to be the servant instead of the master. Letting information continue to serve me instead of me serving every tidbit of information. Let me tell you a little tip right now that I'm going through. And I do this periodically. Purge your uh, subscriptions. So if you get RSS feeds for different blogs, save only those that really can translate into wisdom one day rather than just more data. I have gone through this week and unsubscribed to about three different emails that I was getting. And I've been deleting them for months. They come in. I just delete them. I go, well, instead of doing that, that's one more tiny distraction. Go down to the bottom, unsubscribe, click it, and say, yes, I do, in fact, not want to receive your junk mail anymore. 
it's really easier than all the junk mail you get through snail mail. So just a little tip. Um, lingering. Lingering on the book of Ephesians. Psalm 145, verse 5 says this, I will meditate on your majestic, glorious splendor and your wonderful miracle. What we want to do this morning is spend some time meditating. And um, I intentionally didn't give you notes necessarily. What I want you to do is maybe it's good for you if you're a serious note taker, like I tend to like to write things down. Maybe it's good to put it down and just and just let the words wash over you. We're going to hear a lot of Ephesians. We sang, children of God is Ephesians chapter 1, parts of 3, and the very first part of chapter 5. Uh, we sang earlier, your grace is enough. Um, all these themes that we're singing this morning even are just washing over these truths that we're talking about. Uh, there was a newspaper article, uh, and yes, it was a newspaper, so it shows you this was a little while ago that this happened, uh, but I think it was back in Idaho or Iowa, and I apologize for those of you who are like, those are two clearly different places, I apologize. It's just one of those two. So, um, it reports of an elderly lady who had done her shopping, and upon return, she she went to go put her bags into her car, and she found four white males in her car. She reaches into her bag that she had with her, and she pulls out a handgun. Like I said, this is somewhere other than here, but uh, this happens in certain parts. Pulls out her handgun and shouts to the people in the car uh, that she has a gun, that, she, that they need to get out of the car right now, and that she knows how to use it and will use it. The guys inside decide, we don't want to wait around to find out if she's serious. We're not going to wait for a second invitation. They jump out of the car. This elderly woman then proceeds to put her stuff into the back seat of the car, gets into the car, and goes to turn the ignition, but her key won't fit in the car. What she realizes is, oh, this is an identical car to one four spots over. So she gets her stuff out, walks over to her car, proceeds to put her stuff in the back of her car, gets into the car, turns the ignition, and drives straight to the police station. What she was going to do is go and, and report this. And uh, as she's talking to the sergeant, the sergeant begins to laugh so hard, he's about ready to pull himself into two pieces. And he points to the other end of the counter where there's four pale-faced white guys... <laughs> reporting a carjacking granny. And um, and fortunately that day, no, uh, no, no charges were pressed on either side, and it was all a big misunderstanding. Um, that, that just illustrates something for us, doesn't it? It illustrates the need for grace in our life. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had that happen, but you've had, you've had instances where you've had a giant oops, and you're like, can we just have some grace uh, come out here? Grace is interesting, because grace can't be demanded it can only be offered by someone in authority to prosecute you. And so in this moment, the granny didn't have any right to say, give me grace, I deserve it. She didn't deserve that, she deserved law, and instead she was extended grace and mercy. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, we are going to read the last few verses here that we haven't covered up to date. And so look with me at verse 21 and following, and we'll just finish out the chapter. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love or with an undying love, is how one translation puts it, and that's how we sing it. 
Look at how Paul ends the book. He ends it with grace and peace. Going back several months ago, Ephesians chapter 1, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts off his message with grace and peace. Two amazing words to meditate and think on. They're given to us. They're gifts to us. All we can do is receive those gifts. And then he ends it with this same, with these same two words. We decided, uh, or the, the overall kind of, uh, one sentence, um, theme of the book of Ephesians was this. And we haven't come back to it in a while. But there is one plan ruled by one God, the one true church, and each indi- uh, uh, Christian has a lofty position by grace and must live accordingly. I think Paul starts off with this word grace and this theme, introducing it, because he knows that everything that's going to be introduced in this letter, grace is essential to. Think about this. Grace is essential to the creation of this new entity called the church, which he's going to introduce throughout the rest of the letter. Grace is essential for the calling of each individual Christian. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And grace is essential for living the conduct that is befitting the children of God. We just sang, we are saints. We're the saints. We're the children of God. How is that possible? I mean, I know you people too well, and you know me too well. Isn't that only possible by God's grace? His ongoing grace? His initiating grace? His sustaining grace? That's the only way it's possible. In typical Pauline fashion, uh, he starts off with doctrine and then moves on to conduct. Starts with belief and then proceeds to how, how does that change your behavior. We talk about the fact that this is theologically significant. Only as we die to ourselves, rise in newness of life in Christ, can we even begin to think of walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And of course, if you invert this and you say, let's try to get our practice down. Let's try to get our conduct good and shiny on the outside, and then maybe God will accept us. What you have is a tailor-made recipe for modern-day religion, which only steals, kills, and destroys. There's no life in that. There's no power in that. Without taking a whole bunch of time, what I'd like to do is this. I want you to think about something. If, if, if you were to go and describe to someone who was... Um, who is not a Christian, clearly biblically Ill- illiterate, meaning they just haven't been exposed to the gospel, to the Bible, uh, to, to, to things of God, and you were to try to describe to them, what is the church all about? I mean, if someone saw you coming and going to this place, and they said, I notice you guys come and go a lot, what's the church about? Why don't you just think of how you would describe what that is? And think about this, it actually begins to get a little bit more challenging as you, as you grow in your understanding of what the church is. As we've looked at Ephesians, we've seen the church is not this building. Would the church continue to go on if this burned, uh, burned to the ground tomorrow? Absolutely. We're actually, uh, Naomi and, and Rich and I had a little follow-up meeting to the, to the latest neighborhood workabout, which was an awesome time, by the way. Uh, and we're planning on doing another one in the fall. And we're actually continuing to let that morph and grow so that we'll be a biblically faithful church. And one of the things that was stated in that, in that wrap-up meeting, how do we do this better next time, is one of the things we're, we're thinking of doing is, isn't the church the people? Well, of course it is. And so one of the things we're, we're toying with and praying about and kind of wrestling through is, how do, we, how do we centralize what needs to be centralized, but maybe decentralize what needs to be decentralized? 
so that even even more people are are ministered to and impacted by. As you think about how you would describe the church, you'd probably start to grab metaphors and start to pull from things. Some of them might be biblical. Some of them might be something that just kind of comes out of your own mind. But you're you're left wanting to kind of help people understand. How is it more than a building? What does that mean? What's the mystical component that as we worship here today, there are people right now uh, in Vancouver that are that are worshiping God, and they're part of the same church. They're part of this universal church that, that God's growing and building. And as we sing that we're the saints and children of God, we actually have a tie to people uh, centuries old that, that have sung those same ideas and, and sung those same words. Uh, it's, it's just a, it's a profound mystery is what it is. As we walk through Ephesians, what we got to see was this. We got to see that Paul, under divine inspiration, wrote down different metaphors. He grabbed onto different metaphors and describe the church. Here's what's so marvelous about it. As we walk through these six chapters, um, there's six different pictures that he gives. And as I as I thought about this more this week even and pondered it, I thought, wow, here are six metaphors, six things to grab onto that tell a deeper, bigger part of the story that kind of that kind of uh, communicate to you. There's more of a mystery here than than just what you see on the surface, and they transcend our cultural context. They transcend time, in fact, because he wrote them in a completely different world than us. Remember where he's writing this from? What's on the letterhead? Not the Hilton, but prison, right? He's in prison. He's in chains as he writes this. He's in a totally different world. And yet, as I walk through, just by review, each chapter's metaphor, think of how easy it is for us to grab onto that and understand that. Here was the first one. The church as a body. You're going to see some images, by the way. Some of you are visual learners. And I hope that these call to mind uh, past messages. These are all slides this morning from, from the past several months that we've been learning. But the church as body, Ephesians 1.22 says this, And he put all things under his feet and gave him, talking about Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church's body is a really powerful metaphor because it's so personal. We all understand this. How many of you have an ailment right now in your body somewhere? Don't tell us where it is. Just raise your hand. I want to see it. I've got one at least. Okay? Put your hand down. Here's, here's the reality. When you have that, what you realize is that's an important part of your body and the rest of the body cares about that. You don't say, well, you're just a toe. Who cares about you? Your whole body cares about that, right? And your whole body actually comes around to help support that and figure things out for that part of the body. And you rejoice when it, when, when something good goes on with it. Paul loves this metaphor of the body. And even outside of Ephesians, he talks about the fact that all these different parts, young and old, fit into a body and are really important. He moves on to say this, the, the church as a temple. Ephesians chapter 2.20 says this, He's calling us. Remember, he's writing to saints here, okay? This whole letter is prefaced by saying to the saints who are at Ephesus. He goes on to define what a saint is. Not a church attender, not one who faithfully goes to temple, not one who's memorized, but one who's found to be in Jesus Christ. That's what a saint is. So he's writing to Christians, to followers of Christ. And here's what he calls them. You are members of the household of God. And my brain would immediately go to a person who lives in the household of God he goes somewhere totally different. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together 
grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Yet another common, readily accessible metaphor and picture that people in all ages, in all cultures get. Temple. A building. The church as a living building is what we're talking about. And we're built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, the firm foundation of the prophets and the apostles, and that somehow us being fitted into place and growing up in this living temple has to do with the historical church and those brothers and sisters who've gone before us, some of them paying with their blood to stand as a witness for Jesus Christ, such that the people of God today remain alive and well in America. I mean, it's just a profound thought to think about these things. Moving on, the church as a mystery. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9 says this, I was chosen, Paul talking, to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan which he carried out through Jesus Christ our Lord. The church as a mystery, and in this, in this letter, the word mystery and secret and revealed and, and the like are mentioned countless times. And that's what we've now been entrusted with. So I, I, hope, I hope to do this. We're going to continue on in a second. But I hope to do this. I hope to continue to equip you and biblically inform you this morning the next time someone says, hey, tell me about your church. I hope people are saying, tell me about your church, because that means you've said something that you're excited about, your church, and that you have an ownership there, and people want to know about that. Why are you always going there on Tuesday nights? Why are you always doing this? Why are you involved with that? Tell me about your church. I hope it extends beyond a couple of things. I hope it extends beyond the program or the building or the location. I hope that what you are able to start to incorporate... Now, you don't need to sit them down and say, let me give you six timeless metaphors. You got a pen? You know, you don't need to do that. But, but what I want you to do is I want you to think, wow, the church could be described as a mystery. That's part of what it is. It's, it's kind of a mystery. The church can be described as body, as temple. Here's another one. Chapter 4, the church is a new creation. That's time one ahead. Let's go back. Uh, the church is a new creation. Ephesians chapter 5, 22. Put off your old self and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul goes into great detail talking about this. This is not something old. This is God taking something new and forming something brand new that hasn't been uh, understood in this way until Christ came, did his work, rose from the grave, and now we have this brand new creation. We have a, a, a creator God, and that's what he does. He creates. Not only does he create this new entity called the church, but he also creates a new in us, new people. We're brand new creations walking around. And so I hope when you bump into people that haven't, you know, seen you in a long time, that they can just tell, man, something's different about you. What's going on? And I hope you don't say, well, I got a haircut. You know, I hope it's something deeper. I mean, I, I hope there's something in you that God's forming new things in you. Shouldn't that be true of us as a people and, and just to, to, to notice change in people? Here's a great exercise. Call out change that you see in your brothers and sisters. Maybe you've had a run-in with someone. It's been a year and a half and you've tolerated each other. Kind of like in family, there's some that are close, some that tolerate. And you've been in this place 
And you begin to notice, man, that person's really, really growing and trying to be gracious. That person's really a lot more patient. That person doesn't fly off the handle with his tongue nearly as much as he used to. And I need to, I need to, to tell him about that. And you know what? It's, it's an encouragement that's going to walk up and just say, I see Christ in you. You, you carry the love of God in you in a way that, that, uh, that's powerful. And, um, and that's, that's, that's an encouraging thing. For, for, for those of us who are being formed, for those of us who are changing, here's what we know. It hasn't been because we've mustered up the strength to do it. You can do that for a season, but that never lasts. And so genuine deep change comes when you just say, wow, the grace of God is forming in me, creating in me something brand new, and that's exciting to see. The church is family. The church has an obedient family. Children, husbands, wives. Ephesians chapter 6 says this, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. And the last part of Ephesians chapter 5 describes the picture. Remember the married couple as a picture of Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. And then right away, there's no chapter divisions in the original, right away it moves into children being obedient to your parents. Parents, fathers, don't exasperate the children. That all of you in submission, as children of God that we just sang that we are, walk in love with one another. And the church is a family. And that's, that's just a beautiful picture. It's exciting to know that God is in the business of taking lonely, isolated, wandering people and placing them in family. We got to have an exciting conversation with a woman not long ago whose husband and her are considering adoption. And um, she was curious about our story, and we got to share a little bit. And um, she she had been able to taste firsthand of what it was like to be a lonely person in place in a family of God. And out of response to that, she wanted to now go and do the same thing and, and provide that for a child. And we just, I mean, our hearts just clicked with that. And so now what a beautiful picture that is. That's what God's in the business of doing. He takes the lonely wanderer, and he puts them in a family. And that's just an, that's just an awesome thing. Finally, the, the church as soldier, and this should be the most familiar to you because it just happened. But verse 10 of chapter 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So here's my question for us, church. I started off this series by saying this. This next series will be a great season for us to reflect on how we are doing at being a biblically faithful church. Letting the Bible define what we do with things. Letting the Bible define even our gatherings on Sunday mornings, how we carry ourselves, how we how we move about and, and grow as, as a church. And so the question I would pose to you is this, how are we doing? As you think about these six metaphors I just read, how are we doing? Some of them we might be hitting on really well, others we might not be at all. What I do know is this, God's continuing to be faithful to us. God's continuing to grow us and lead us as we move forward as a church. Something else about Ephesians that is unique to some other books of the Bible is this. Uh, rather than being uh, something that Paul came in and like a doctor saying, you're sick, I need to come in and I need to, you know, extract this little, this little sickness from your body or, or, or go after this, this thing that's going on in your body. It's preventative maintenance. Okay. So some of you kids, how many of you kids love it when mom and dad just slap sunscreen all over you at all times of the day? and you sweat, and it gets in your eyes, and it just feels awesome on your skin. Anyone like that process? Only my daughter. Okay. Um, 
we'll, we'll keep doing it. Here's what, oh, and Abby, I see you, Abby. Here's, here's what your parents are doing. Your parents are doing preventative maintenance for you. They are trying to preventatively help you from not having harm come to you later on in life. And so they go through the ritual, and here's summertime, right? So you're going to get it a bunch, so just brace for it. You're going to get the spray and the lotion and all over you. And the second it's on there, what happens? If you're at the beach, like sand just comes onto your body and you wipe it, then it scrapes. I mean, I've been there. It's, it's a hard process. But what it is, it's preventative. It's actually done in love to say, we love you. We don't want you to get sunburned. Anyone been sunburned before? Not fun. Yeah, sunburned. And longer term, what happens, people, if we don't do sunscreen and we get overexposure? Right. Skin cancer, all kinds of problems can, can come up. So, we've learned from the 70s, right? It's, uh, I mean, there's so many, we, we all just didn't do this in the 70s. We put oil to attract the, the sun, to, you know, to sit under magnifying glasses and say, I want really, really leathery skin when I'm older. And so, we've learned. And so, we're, we're just, we're moving the process along. This is, this is exactly what Ephesians is. Rather than coming in and saying, let me untangle all these things you guys have tied yourself up in a knot, this is rather preventative instruction. This is instructive for us as a church, as a family, as an individual. Some, uh, some Christians go through their life, some parents go through life, some people in their job go through life reactive. Always responding to the latest crises. Living under the tyranny of the urgent. And just constantly react, react, react. Instead of the opposite, which is being proactive, right? And going after something uh, initially. Let me give you a couple of examples of how, as a church, we're trying to think this through. We could be collectively a reactive church. Every time something comes up, we go picket it. Every time something's going on that we like, we go support it. But we're always on the reactive side of things. Here's a couple of proactive thought processes that we're going through that we want to do. Serving the homeless and the hungry is more of a reactive kind of a thing. And we're engaged in that. And I would continue to challenge you as an individual, as a family, as a community group, as a church, to remember the poor. To go and bring them a meal and a gospel meal all at the same time. And that's just a, that's an awesome thing. Be involved in that. But, but that would be reactionary kinds of things. They're already homeless. They're already hungry. Here's a proactive thing. We have a garden growing behind us and a fresh summer crop that's going to be coming up in a short season of time, and the mission and vision behind the garden is to be proactive in saying, what if we could keep some people from falling right beneath the the the, the line where they're in a place receiving uh, government assistance, receiving help, on the grid, being supported, and not falling out from under that, and now living under the bridge over here at Elmwood Expressway in Brenham. Do you see how both are important? But one is proactive and one is reactive. Let's be engaged in both of those. Here's another example. There are many small groups around many churches focused on recovery. And those are powerful things. Many in this room have benefited from recovery kinds of small groups. I think those are great. But those are reactive. The problem's already there. The bondage is already there. It's how to apply God's word to come and free you from that. Here is a proactive opportunity, working toward a healthy, and by healthy I simply mean a biblical view of alcohol, sex, marriage, money, relationships, on and on we could go. So community groups that focus on, let's train ourselves right now, before we become a statistic, before we fall into a devastating pattern of destruction in our lives, 
Let's get biblically informed and let's let the, the message move from our head to our heart, out into our life by, by, by going and doing this. Here's what's so challenging to our flesh. In the moment, when I'm out at the beach, I don't feel the need for sunscreen. I only feel that later on in a different season. Many of you don't feel the need right now to, to dive in and say, how do the different parts fit into the whole so that I can observe money in a way that would totally honor God? How can I keep my job from not becoming my idol? How can I keep food in its proper place and computers in their proper place, my hobbies in their proper place and relationships in their proper place? But if you don't feel the burning need for it, sometimes it's hard to go invest serious time and set time aside to go and investigate those things. Don't exclude one, but don't be bound by the other. My, my challenge to us as a church is to con- continue to think, how can we be reactive and help those who are in need currently? And how can we be strategic and proactive in assisting those and being out ahead of the problem and correcting it before it becomes a massive issue? As profound as the book of Ephesians is, it's intensely practical. It grapples with moral, spiritual, domestic problems. Uh, and answers them in clear and really unequivocal language. This too is really instructive. Just as, as we grow in our, in our knowledge, as we grow in this profound thinking, God doesn't want us to go sit in an isolated place, not interact with people, and just ponder His marvelous, wonderful deeds alone. I think we need to go do that. It's good to come here and call out the majestic deeds of God and to really think about them and linger in them so that we can scatter to all the places that God has you, church, to go and be the hands and feet and mouth and arms and emotion and ears of Jesus Christ to the place he has you in. And not to long just for Sunday again so you can be in safety in that warm place of soaking in God's majesty. Ephesians does both of this for us. Ephesians chapter 1 ought to blow your mind every single time you read it. I mean, absolutely blow your mind. Huge scope, huge things in it. And then you read four to six, and there are such practical day-to-day kinds of living answers and things and instructions and rebukes and encouragements that you just say, wow, this is really practical. I would long for a church filled with people who are not one or the other. Filled with all kinds of feet-on-your-ground knowledge that isn't biblically informed, or those who are just filled with amazing knowledge but they never interact with people. They don't know how to break it down and just give it into bite-sized people so that it does any good for people. And that's a challenge. We all want to walk in kind of those two ways. Here's the announcement I promised uh, earlier. I know you all have been waiting with bated breath for it, so here it is. Um, in an effort to be, again, proactive and not reactive to some of these things, we're, we're going to have a summer series starting Wednesday nights, June, 23rd, uh, June 29th. You'll see it in your bulletin next week. And it's going to go for six weeks. And there are going to be several different tracks where you will get to come and you'll get to just dive deeper into some topics that uh, on a typical Sunday we just don't cover. We covered the whole book in several months here, but we skipped over a whole bunch. There are certain specific topics that you have questions about and that you have needs about and that you've wondered about. Many community groups are shutting down for the summer, um, at least in some way, shape, or form. And so this is an opportunity for you to take that and, and come be here at the church. We're going to all meet at the church, and then we'll break up into a couple of different tracks. 
I want to just give a quick shout out for mine because I won't be able to do it for the next two weeks. Um, I'm going to be leading one and I'm going to be roping in some other people from the church, but I'm going to be leading one that um, I'm going to call Eat to Live, How to Enjoy Your Bible. And here's what it is. It's really for a couple of different mindsets. Um, let me toss this out to you. Uh, you would all agree that eating is vital to your survival, right? I mean, just no question about it. Some of you are thinking right now, amen, brother, hurry up. We've got a welcome lunch and I'm hungry. Um, so it is with, with digesting God's word, the Bible, uh, to, to a disciple's spiritual life. If you do not eat, you will get sick, shrivel up, and you will die. And it won't be pretty. Spiritually, it's exactly the same way. If you do not digest and eat God's word, you will shrivel up and die as a, as a Christian. It, it, will, it will cause you to be sick. Uh, most people, I think, in this room don't need to be convinced of the need for God's word. I think you need to be convinced in one of two ways. One is this. I think most of most in here either need to be convinced uh, or helped with motivation to do it. And motivation has to do with this. If I told you right now the first person to run on their feet to Milpitas gets a prize. Very few of you, except Ben, would leave. Because you're like, what do you want to know? What's the prize? Is it the $1.12 Starbucks card? Because I ain't going. I'm just not going to do it for that. But let's say we put something else in there that was immensely valuable to you. I think most people in this room, myself included, I'd try to beat all of you for a million dollars. Is a million dollars the most important thing to, to most of us? Probably not at all. But is a million dollars worth a run to Milpitas? You bet you. I'm, I'm out of here. I'd, I'd try to get there. So you have to know what's the prize of it. So in, in talking about motivation to, to digest God's word and to, and to spend the time that it takes to be in God's word, you need to be, you need to help with motivation to know what the prize is. The second thing I think sometimes people need help with is just the basics on how to approach the most unique book you'll ever pick up. How do I go about studying this thing? Most books, how do you start? You open the cover, you go past the acknowledgements and the copyright information, the title page, and that blank page that they put in, and what you do is you start reading with, with, with uh, verse one. Not a bad way to go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a great place to start, right? But what happens for, for me several times growing up is I got, I got through parts of Genesis once I got older, because Genesis had some cool stories into it, but I would always get to a place and I'd just hit a wall. I'd say, what am I even reading? What am I talking about? So how do you go about with the basics of how to study your Bible, how to enjoy your Bible, how to ingest your Bible? That's going to be my track. There will be a couple of others that you'll be hearing about in the weeks to come. I hope that you'll take six weeks and carve it out. Some of you have not been able to be a part of a community group. This is your opportunity during the summer for six weeks to say I'm going to prioritize Wednesday nights at 6.30 to be at the church and, and be with God's people. Let me kind of wrap up with a couple of, uh, of final thoughts from Ephesians and, um, and then we'll, we'll do some singing and, and wrap things up. I shared with this kind of as we started things off, but back to this idea of one and what is, what is this book talking about and what are the lessons for it? Um, uh, I, I, I pose this and I pose it again that people in all cultures and in all ages struggle with questions of purpose and meaning. I haven't traveled nearly as much as some of you in this room, but everywhere I've gone, in different places than my own and in my own home, I have had conversations with people and individuals about this, and it's everywhere exactly the same. And as I read old dead people who wrote books and their voice carries on, 
they struggled with it and they dealt with it in their day and age. When you go back and read certain scriptures, Ben read a scripture, I think, this week, and we were just marveling at how that was written not for today's day and age, which seems like it would fit perfectly, but a long time ago, and yet it still fits. Here's the message of Ephesians. All things are created for ultimate unity in Christ Jesus. It seems like a really simplistic Sunday school answer to say that Jesus really is the answer for these divisions, but it's the truth. And Ephesians goes to lay that on. And he doesn't talk about a specific narrow band of region. He uses this word all throughout the, the book. Secondly, people in all cultures and ages have a sense of God. They might call it a higher consciousness, a higher power. They might bow to it on a tree somewhere. But all people in all cultures in all ages have a sense of God. Where did that come from? Why is that there? It's not unique to us. All people have been aware of the struggle between good and evil. They're aware of the hostile forces that rage within us and other people toward us. The book of Ephesians answers it this way. There is deliverance in one source, and that's Jesus Christ. Paul elevates Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation, which falls perfectly in line with the rest of Scripture. And that is this this way to appease this way to be delivered from the wrath of, this sense of God that's there is found and answered in this mystery that's now been made known to me, Paul, and I'm going to proclaim it to the Gentiles, to all non-Jewish people, to tell them this is the mysterious plan. God's now revealing it to us. How many of you look at FedEx trucks a little bit differently uh, now that you've been in church? You find the arrow? My family points it out every single time. I see the arrow, Dad. Why do we know about the arrow? We know because it was told to us. It was shown to us, crystal clear. Otherwise, we would have just kept looking at FedEx trucks exactly the same way. But now we can see the arrow. And so it is with the gospel. It's been clearly pointed the way for us, and now we know. We're nothing special in discovery. We didn't discover it ourselves. It was shown to us. It was revealed to us. It was divinely given to us. This phrase, in Christ, uh, or its equivalent shows up 35 times in this book, more than any other book in the whole Bible alone. Listen to this. In Christ, we, we find our calling. In Christ, we receive grace and peace. In Christ, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. In Christ, we're redeemed. We're forgiven. In Christ, we're chosen. In Christ, we're included. We're adopted into God's family. In Christ, we have an inheritance. In Christ, we're given the Holy Spirit, and in Christ, we find our hope. Chapter 1 of Ephesians. You get the picture? I mean, it's just powerful. In Christ is where it's found. Now, I want to just make a confession here for a second. Are there any 8th graders in the room? If you're in 8th grade, stand up. Stand up. Kern, I know you're here. You're the only one? Timmy, stand up. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Just graduated and are new ninth graders. Okay, give it up for these guys. Give it up. <clears throat> stay standing, stay standing. Now, we want to we wanna celebrate and honor you guys moving on to high school. We're excited about that. Uh, Ben's been running like a madman all over town, going to graduation this past week, uh, and it's been an awesome thing. But I want you to look at these three gentlemen, and there's others who are going on the trip who aren't here in the room this morning. And uh, I want you to know that I am envious of these of these uh of these people and here's why i do not want to go back to my freshman year of high school again that's not why i'm envious 
I'm envious because these uh, eighth graders are heading out um, in, in about a week and a half to a place called Magic Mountain. Go ahead and sit down, guys. At Magic Mountain resides the heart and soul of some of the best roller coasters on the West Coast. Okay, I, as a youth pastor, got to go to Magic Mountain almost every year. And at some point, God said, no more Magic Mountain for you, Dave. And I handed the reins off to someone else. And so now Ben gets to go to Magic Mountain. And here's why I'm so sad about it. I love getting on roller coasters. I love the thrill of it. I love introducing kids who've never been on this specific roller coaster before to, to, to go on it. I love when they create new rides. And Magic Mountain's amazing at building new rides each time. I can remember very clearly who I sat next to on some of these first rides of these. I love to get in. And I want more and more safety things going on me. If it's a little seat belt, you know it's just a decent ride. Like, it's barely worth your time. But if they're putting, like, leg things on, I want someday to sit in a car. I want them to, like, shove my head back and put a Velcro strap around. And I'm just like, this is going to be awesome. I mean, that's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping for, okay? Um, I went, I went to Magic Mountain and I got in and, um, I want you to think with me for a moment. Um, when, when I got onto this ride for the first time, my favorite ride to this day, uh, and I've only got to go on it once because it broke soon after. I'm glad it didn't break while I was on it. But it's called the X, okay? And this is down at Magic Mountain, and it's the first roller coaster that absolutely freaked me out. Uh, you can pretty much predict what roller coasters are doing. You know, they say, we've got a new thing where you, you dangle from above. Yeah, but we still know where you're going, right? We, we have a new thing where you're floating. But, you know, there's, there's always these different things, but you still kind of know where you're going. The X changed all of that. I was a professional roller coaster rider for the most part, and I got on this thing, and when that thing came down, I, I, I clung to it, and, and I was thrilled that I had it on. Uh, because of the nature of how it, it, it threw me around and freaked me out, I was just thrilled that I had this, this safety harness on. Here's, here's what happened on that one time on the X. Um, I was wearing flip-flops. And I was on this thing, my feet are dangling, which is no big deal. I've ridden a lot of roller coasters with dangling feet and flip-flops, no big deal. On this roller coaster, about halfway through, my toes are like this. And I'm like, don't lose the flip-flops. And I was like, you know, these things are a solid $8. And, and I'm just hanging on to these things. And at one point, this is how I knew this was the best roller coaster ever. At one point, one just blew right off. It was right in the middle of a corkscrew or something on that ride, but it went flying, and I couldn't have been happier. I was ecstatic, but I lost this. So somewhere underneath the X-Ride, guys, is my flip-flop. Find it for me. The rest of the day, I walked around with one flip-flop and a very black foot, but it was totally worth it. Here's why I bring up Magic Mountain. Man, I want to go with you guys. Um, here's why I bring it up. That safety strap is, is what I cling to on a roller coaster. It's why I even enjoy the ride. Think about this. What if that life, what if life represented the roller coaster and we had this ability to put this strap on or off and let's say that we chose to, to, to put it on. But, but let's say that we didn't say completely, we'll say, you know, let's leave it where I can still, you know, pull it off if it gets uncomfortable or pull it off if I don't want it anymore or pull it off if I think I can handle it. And on most roller coasters, as far as you can see, it doesn't look too bad. Much of life is like that. I can see it's not too bad. I can manage that. It's what's coming like in a couple of minutes that we can't handle, right? I was thrilled to have this on because my very life depended on it. I want to read for you a quote and let you make the connection between this from a guy who wrote this a long time ago, one of the great preachers, Charles Spurgeon, in a book called All of Grace. Listen to this. Talking about people who 
who are in Christ, who receive Christ part way. Here's what he says. They set out trusting to, to, trusting to Jesus in a measure, but looking to themselves for continuance and perseverance in the heavenward way. And so they set out faultily, and as a natural consequence, turned back long before. If we trust to ourselves for our holding on, we shall not hold on at all. If we trust to ourselves to hold on to Christ, if we trust to ourselves to complete our walk, so many people trust in Christ for a season. It felt good for a season. They placed their trust in Jesus for a season. And then somewhere along the line, they got tricked into thinking that the continuance, the perseverance of this walk of faith somehow depended on their upright walk, on their prayer life, on their devotional life, on their good deeds toward other people, on their church attendance and tithing, whatever it might be. And all of a sudden, we're back to what we talked about a second ago, where we invert conduct and belief. If you're in this room, please continue to let Jesus be the one who's forming anew in you this new life that he has walked in. That's why Paul keeps coming back. In Christ you have these things. In Christ you have these things. These are not of yourselves, so what? None of us can boast. So when you look at someone else, they're just as deserving, if you will, to receive the gift that God's given as you were. We all come equal. Finally, people in all cultures and all ages divide naturally and desperately try to reconcile assorted risks. Many of you have untold stories in this room right now of things happening this week in your home, in your family, on the job, in your neighborhood, that there are risks going on. And you go, yeah, I see this. You don't need to convince me of it. I know that's there. People in all cultures, in all ages, have these walls that are being built. It's a result of sin. It's a natural result of sin. Marriages are not thrown by themselves to, to build toward oneness. Marriages by the sin nature in us are prone to isolation. And that's why we must keep fighting and walking in grace and, and leaning on Christ to build that in us. The Church of Christ is the one alternative to the discord, gathering humanity into a new unity. Ephesians 2.14, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Band, why don't you come on up right now? My prayer for us as a church is that Ephesians, while we're going to wrap it up today and move on to other things in the coming weeks, that the message of Ephesians, that walking in and seeing this banner, this word one, and all these different ones that are there, we'd continue to pray and say, God, would you continue your work of one in this location and in the hearts of the people that gather here on a Sunday? One church, one Lord, one baptism, one faith, one body, one head, one love, and that all things are being made one, are being unified in Christ. Here's kind of your, your life work, if you will, uh, as, we, as we wrap up the book. I would invite you to read Ephesians in one sitting sometime this week. Do it as a family. Gather around after the table and just read the whole letter as it would have been read in the first century. And just read it. Just hear the whole message uh, put in one place. Let the truths, the promises, the rebuke, and the scope of the book change you. I hope you've been changed by going through Ephesians. I hope you'll continue to let those lessons linger. Secondly, 
Invest sacred time. And by sacred, I just mean set apart time for reviewing the notes that you've taken, journals that you've had over the last several months. Go review podcasts that you've missed, lessons that you've internalized. If you've had things with your small group, go back and just think on the times that God's been faithful in the last several months, especially as it relates to Ephesians. And finally, prayerfully continue to be attentive and submissive to the message and the call that Ephesians gives to us. This is a book that I hope 20 years from now we're all still marveling and mining the depths of what's in this this letter uh, to the Ephesians. I'm going to close in a word of prayer, but just before we do, I want to uh, put a screen up that that came about um, this last uh, December-ish time frame. And over here on this wall is something we called Show Hope. And um, 44 children have been sponsored through World Vision in a region called Gowata uh, in Ethiopia. And it's a region that um, is now being changed and blessed and supported because of uh, the, the call of God on your life to stand up and do something about it. Many of you are here and witnessed what it was like to see 40 cards that were hanging in this room and one by one just get picked and said, I'm going to choose this kid and make a difference in their life and just start to, to sponsor them. Uh, Becky and I have been in touch with World Vision um, and uh, we're still praying. I really covet your prayers uh, that we could, on our pending trip here in, in a week, uh, be able to touch base with the leaders of that, be able to bring news from our church in San Jose. I was telling the World Vision person, I said, look, we're not trying to get NBC's name out there. We don't care one bit about that. We want to bring news from the church of San Jose that someone cares about you guys. Someone cares about the work that you're doing. Leaders in this region, we're supporting you in prayer. We want to see spiritual revival come here. We want to help out by meeting some physical needs, but also by letters, also by communication, also to know that prayers are there. Isn't this exactly what Paul sent Tychicus to do? To go and send word how things are going. And he was a faithful minister of Christ as he goes out and sends word there. Becky and I, Lord willing, will be meeting our kids um, in about a week and a half. And we'll be going to court. We'll be in Ethiopia. We will not be with you. You're in great hands here. Things are covered. Um, and we're excited to hear what God did in our absence here. But pray for us. Pray for us as we go that we'd be faithful ministers in whatever situations God, God would have us uh, be in. Let me close um, right out of Ephesians. And uh, ask that you would all just stand right now. And um, why don't you grab a hand of someone next to you. Go across the aisles. Let's get one big hand-holding love party going on. And uh, and let's just bow our heads, close our eyes, and let these the words of this prayer uh, just, just wash over you. <clears throat> I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. According to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, 
not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And all God's people said, Amen.